Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 69. No innuendo joke here. Uh, we are here to talk about volume 17. We are reviving our reread project for the time being anyway. Hope you guys enjoy it. Many people asked us to continue doing these. You know, we had to put it on hold a bit because of real-life schedule stuff, and also Mira jump-started the pace of his release. You know, the, re- the reread project was supposed to be a stopgap measure between, you know, the the breaks and the releases of the releases of Berserk, but since it became monthly, it's very difficult to slot in a reread on top of the very regular releases of the episode. So hopefully we'll begin doing it uh, this way moving forward, but we'll see. For now, let's go ahead and dive into Volume 17, one of my absolute favorite volumes for a number of weird reasons. Like, I feel like this volume, more than anything before it, gives us a real sense of the state of the world, apart from just Guts' travels. Of course, we get glimpses here and there, but there's a big chunk of this particular volume in the middle where it kind of just divorces itself from Guts' travels and focuses on how the world has changed over the, the past, the preceding two years. You know, while, while Guts was traveling as a black swordsman and after the eclipse, you get this two-year change in the state of the world. I just think it's really fascinating, all these little details you're learning uh, before it jumps right back into Guts, right before it goes to Albion. So there's a lot to a lot to, to talk about in Volume 17. I but. think it's an extremely dense Volume 2 where yeah. you just, yeah. like you say, we see a lot about the world, but there's also so many things we actually learn and we see in this uh, volume that just you know still not still to this day uh, you know they're important so it's very yeah it's very important volume. I want to start with the cover uh, one of my favorite covers as well I just like it's a very uh, intimate portrait of Guts and Puck very friendly cover almost all the other covers in Berserk are violent and this is absolutely not that you know so like the only one I can think of is like volume 25 or so I guess 33 with Griffith's face is not a violent cover, but one of the rare non-violent covers <clears throat> of Berserk, let's say. Yeah, I, I also like uh, the style you are used for this. Uh, it's something mm-hmm. I feel he hasn't done much. It's some kind of almost hyper-realistic, you know, so I, I really like it, even though there's, there's Puck on it. It's, it's close to like an impressionistic style, because it's not very, de- not very defined, at least for Guts features. They're very rough. I like yeah. that. And Puck, Puck is a little more defined. I like the, the light sourcing on Puck as well. It's a little um, unrealistic, but it's, it's, it's interesting. I like it coming from the rear and stuff like that, from the yeah. sides of him. Well, he's supposed to have his, to be his own light source, you know? Yeah, I know, but it's, it's arbitrary where the lights are coming from. Like, one's coming from his scalp, one's yeah. coming from his wings. Yeah, it's all. from both sides of him. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, moving on to the contents, uh, as you open the page... Uh, we have a standalone kind of volume teaser showing the crucified falcon. I actually don't know. I can't necessarily identify the bird. I presume it's supposed to be a falcon, but um, yeah, and there's a, a behemoth with tendrils that uh, feed into it as well. It's a very, of course, very strange thing. But at the same time, it also, you know, like it reproduces the imagery we all know so well. Yeah, it's a do-it-yourself, holy see symbol. <laughs> yeah, heretics. Yeah. So yeah, we don't actually see the pagan cult. Uh, until volume 18, but I, I think this represents Mira kind of trying to tie together the religion of that world with um, kind of what we know about the underlying forces behind the world, you know, the God Hand, the idea of evil, and the Behirits kind of representing those manipulative forces and tying that to something that's happening on the world. But it's also just a disturbing image, you know, I, I think that's also part of it as well, but it's, it, ev- it evokes meaning through that. 
I mean, uh, it's worth noting that I, I think we didn't really fully see the Holy See symbol and the falcon imagery. I think it's till volume, I think 14 is when we noted it the very first time. Yep. Uh, it could have, it might have slipped in a panel that we missed, but it certainly was never put in in front of our faces until volume 14. I think it's when we're supposed to be starting to pay attention to it if it didn't exist before then. Yeah, it so. was never put forward before. I think that's what matters. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, uh, moving forward, we'll open it up, and 17 begins immediately after 16 when Guts was imprisoned by the uh, Holy Iron Chain Knights. Uh, they're holding him for questioning because they think that he is the uh, Dark Falcon from that was in their prophecy. And he's still in a, he's in a cage out here in the night. Not, not exactly a nice treatment for him, but of course he did just kill you know a few of their, their guys. Makes him sense. Yeah, and they've been tracking him for so long that uh, they are, I think they just decided he's the culprit, you know. Sure, yeah. Of course, there's, there's the immediate danger here of the sun's garden starting to go down and the specters are gathering in the shadows. You can mm-hmm. see them kind of taunting guts from the shadows. Yeah. And he says, this isn't good. And uh, Puck arrives on, on hand with uh, <laughs> the keys, kind of rolls into the, tumbles into the area holding the keys. He's wearing a scarf or something. Yeah, because he's disguised as a, as a Japanese uh, TV hero called Zubatto. And, oh. uh, yeah, who used to transform, he plays a guitar and uh, it turns into a gun, that kind of stuff. So, it's, uh, <laughs> that's actually a, a pun on his name because he said he's Zupaku, you know, instead of Zubato. So, it's like that. And he suppose he appears like, I don't know, you know, it's that kind of uh, archetype where the hero comes out of nowhere and saves the day. So, <laughs> yeah, that's that uh, whole thing. It's pretty funny, actually. It's, uh, it's one of my, Favorite moments, you know. <laughs> I think I might have known that, but I'd t- totally forgotten about uh, it. Yeah, I've Pretty told cool. you about it before, but that was a long time ago. Yeah. Anyway, uh, he makes Guts kind of beg for the keys, and asking him to say thank you, and that you know that Puck is uh, calls and forces Guts to call him uh, "thank you very much, oh great Puck." Yeah, he calls him Puck Sama in the oh, yeah? Japanese. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is you know like that's the only time in the entire story Guts has called anyone with a Sama. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I like at the top of the next page, Puck. It's like his his features get really exaggerated. He's like, yeah, I can't hear you. Makes him repeat <laughs> it, you know, holding his, his, his yeah. face. Well, <laughs> it's like ridiculous. <laughs> And immediately after that, Guts is, you know, talking to himself and just pinch and twist for his head to pop off, you know, presuming after he gets out of here, he's going to kill Puck, of course. Very cool. <clears throat> he manages to get him out here. Actually, before they manage to escape, you know, the the shadows of the specters are growing in intensity. And they could become monstrous and Puck begins swatting at them. What I like about the next, it's just really one page, but... You get a little bit of a look on it, you know, Guts on a sneaking mission, you know, Guts doing stealth for once. You know, you don't really think of Guts as a stealthy kind of guy, but he kind of has to out of necessity here. He, he can be. He's done it against Apostles before, for example. Sure, clever, yeah, but I, yeah, you're right. And on the, with the Count kind of snuck around within the columns. Don't forget his uh, his brief tenure as an assassin when he had to kill everyone in the castle to cover his tracks. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> the, the key about him, I think, is that he's resourceful, you know, and he'll do whatever yeah. it takes. That's what... Actually, Griffiths liked about him when he first see. But he manages to sneak his way into Farnese's tent and catches her whipping herself and, and penance, presumably for having thoughts. I don't really know. She doesn't actually go into it, but she's whipping herself and uh, praying to the false idol, the, the falcon idol on the table there. When she sees Guts, he startles her. The, the Actually, it causes the table to shake and the, the idol to shake as well, kind of almost t- toddling over. Gives him a sense of the weight of the object. 
anyway, Gutsun knocks her out, and uh, of course, his intent here is to use her as bait or to as a hostage to to get out of here. Uh, equips himself and has to take out a guy, but before that, um, Puck noticed that his injuries aren't fully recovered yet, which you know comes into play later on. You know, he's still recovering from the lost children stuff, so he's not quite still up to snuff yet. But yeah. he'll, he'll soon have to fight anyway, regardless of those injuries. Anyway, he has to take out uh, a young-looking guy uh, who caught him in the, the tent. That's some bad luck for him. Yeah. <laughs> He's not going to have a very good smile anymore. Metal arm face. And the, yeah, the guy was uh, actually you know, coming to tell uh, her that uh, Gus has escaped. So mm-hmm. he, yeah. his uh, respite wasn't very long. It's also interesting that Puck's the one that, you know, he's about to gear up and walk away, and Puck's the one that reminds him to pick up the Behirat, you know. Yeah. How rude it would be to leave my betchie here, you know, mm-hmm. and Guts then goes to pick it up. So, once again, tying the Behirat to, to Guts through Puck. It's interesting because, you know, uh, we, we've talked about this before, I think, but, you know, like, Behirat are supposed to be guided by the idea of evil, you know, it's supposed to be through causality, all of that, but, you know, it seems that it's been continuously Puck who's reminded Guts to take it, who's managed to make sure Guts keep keeps it in uh, in his position in his uh, possession. Mm-hmm. So, I think I know what you're saying here. Yeah. Is it, do we have a theory yet that Puck is the secret villain of the whole series? <laughs> no, actually, I, I was saying that uh, maybe Guts is not supposed to be carrying the Beheret, but oh, okay. through, through Puck, he's managed to to keep it, and that. It will not, you know, because people will say, oh, who's going to be sacrificed? Who's going to turn into an apostle? But yeah, maybe that's a, a clue that it might be used uh, for something else in that. Because it would have gone gotten away, but Puck has been the one to keep it with guts. So well, you're saying so Puck is subverting the plans of, the, of its intent. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's actually what I'm saying, that Puck is subverting the plans, that he's yeah. uh, countering whatever, you know, uh, causalities at play here. Do you think that's intentional on his part, or is it just it literally, you know, my betchy? <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think it's intentional, you know. I think it could be because of his nature as an elf, you know, outside of yeah. human affairs, yeah. physical world, and all that. Yeah, he's not as concerned with the sort of the battle of good and evil. Like, he doesn't, you know, he has this strange affinity for the Behirat, which is, you know, kind of funny. I think he mm-hmm. just, you know, you know, views it as a pet, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It's, yeah, his his relationship with it is not serious. It's whimsical, and it's never yeah. portrayed as anything beyond that, really. But he's been, if you look back to even volume two or three, he's already flying off with the Beheret from the camp. His relationship with the Beheret actually dates back to the beginnings of the manga. So I, mm-hmm. I, f- I find it pretty interesting. It's something that's been enduring. It's pretty much like the, you know, the the boy Gatsen Kaskasan that appears in the in the first volume. This kind of stuff yeah. that's been going through the whole series, I tend to take it seriously. Sure. I don't think you can disregard the whole Puck and Behirat thing. It's really just, it's not, mm, it's difficult to ruminate on because you don't know where it's going with that beyond that kind of affinity. Like, what, how's that going to play out? Yeah. It's, it's difficult to yeah. even posit an answer for that. So that's why I think most of us don't focus on it because it's difficult to see where it's going. That's all. Yep. Anyway, um... As Guts makes his escape, I feel really bad for Azan here because you know he's the second in command here. Only nominally, he's he's more like the leader here. He's kind of babysitting Farnese. You know, he's the one with experience. He's the one that knows how to you know wrangle people in a military force. But he gets completely one upped here. You know, Guts not only escapes, gets all his equipment back, but he also takes you know the leader hostage. So poor Azan sets the tent on fire. Sets the tent on fire. Yeah. Sets the horses loose. What a blunder! What a colossal <laughs> blunder! He says. 
And even, yeah, he just looks so upset. And even uh, Serpico looks a little nervous here. Well, yeah, especially after Guts, you know, puts uh, the torch up to our eyes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I really love Guts' expressions throughout the scene, that, like, kind of the villain's grin that he has throughout the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, I, I, I like that he says that, you know, uh, Jose, he references the fact that they burn people, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, that's, like, all the more ironic. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Guts manages to set the, gets the horses out, you know, burns the tail a little bit to get the horses to freak out. And Puck actually is, you know, the most upset about that among everything that happened here. He's upset about the horses being scrambled away like that. Poor horses. Well, I like and, that Azan is so, he, the thing he's most offended by is Guts using Parnese as a hostage because it's a woman. Yeah. <laughs> it just, right. it really, it really seems to bug him even more than the gravity of the rest of the situation. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's his nightly, uh, how to say, yes. uh, morals, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not just that you're escaping and, you know, ruining all of our plans and burning down our camp, but so dishonorable in how you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Serpico t- managed to get a horse and takes off after them, during which, you know, we see B- go over back to Guts and Puck, and Puck is still chastising Guts for, you know, what he did with the horse. It's telling him to apologize to the horse. And of course, you know, Guts finally does apologize to the horse. <laughs> but the trouble is here, essentially, the interplay is interesting because Farnese doesn't know what's happening. She doesn't see Puck, and we don't quite realize that until a little bit later. But she thinks that Guts is just talking to himself, of yeah. course. You know? So yeah, she finally wakes up. Uh, she kind of realizes the, the circumstance she's in, but she's just not quite, doesn't quite realize the gravity of it. You know? So Guts has to remind her how close her head's getting to those rocks, how serious <laughs> things are. Um, anyway, this is a big re- revelation here, how humans do or don't see elves. We see that you know Puck's doing all these funny things with Farnese's face, and she, she doesn't see him even though he's right in front of her. She thinks Guts is messing with him because of all these you know weird things that are happening to her. Puck reveals that you know she can't see us at all. She can't perceive the elves. It's actually a funny thing because we'll get to that soon, but that's a, a defining moment for explaining some things that comes into play later on, for example, in Britannis. But, you know, the fact, yeah, some people who are too used to the human world and have become desensitized to, you know, uh, elves will basically mentally block them off, like they refuse to see them, even though they might be slapping their face or playing with their nose, whatever. But uh, when the specters come, she, she believes she, sees him. she believes in that it's sort of the you know i'm not a, i don't believe in god but i'm afraid of him yeah <laughs> the, of. the thing is like yeah she she can like refuse to to see them like until it becomes impossible to not see that's an interesting mechanic actually it's gotten a lot of people confused over the years but uh yeah i find it to be a pretty interesting mechanic which is like so long as he's just playing with her lips, there's no problem. But when, like, yeah, her yeah. life's in danger, she, you know, snaps out of that kind of bullshit. Sure. Heightened awareness. One thing I like about this scene, though, is that Puck isn't so much investigating it as he is. He realizes what's happening, and he just takes the opportunity to mess with her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like how he, he stares at her until he blushes and then <laughs> opens her mouth. He kind of reminds me of what goes on with, uh, you know, uh, some kind of religious worldviews that some people can have where they'll accept some scientific facts so long as they can twist it so it fits into their views of the world. It's a nice metaphor for people having blinders on to, like, they'll pick and choose. They'll take some science facts and ignore the ones they don't like. Yeah, you know, pretty much, yeah. Mm. 
I've actually always wondered if there was more going on than than we kind of understand about how that process works. Like, if is there something about the makeup of astral creatures that causes this kind of phenomenon to be reinforced? Yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> I like um, the imagery here as Serpico's about to fire his bolt. You know, the specters overtake him. They're flying towards Guts. I love that. They're kind of swimming through the air with their elongated shapes. This is a really cool image yeah, of yeah. them flying. Love it. Uh, one thing I didn't notice, or not notice, one thing I didn't bother noting so far in this podcast is, like, I really like the landscape in this area. It's really, it really sticks out in my mind as being very memorable. Just the rocky cliffs. Really? Everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. You don't like so? Well, I mean... Uh, I I don't mind it, but it's not one of the most memorable to me. It's very, like you said, very rocky, almost. You know, I kind of like that uh, desertic, rocky, you know, landscape style. But uh, it's not something. I mean, it's never seemed particularly memorable to me. Mm. Uh, to me, like, it's almost comes right to mind when I think of Volume Seventeen. This whole section, this whole, and when the, when the sun comes well, up and the morning truth. Yeah, yeah, the section does, and I agree that uh, panel with the sun coming up is uh, is very very nice and uh, yeah, very. I, don't well, I think know what you I, know objectively, it's nothing special. You know, it's not like you know the magical woods or anything. But mm-hmm. uh, it's for the in the context of this uh, scene, it's pretty. It's, yeah, it's pretty effectively used. It's very grounded, you know? I don't know. It seems yeah. very real to me. Yeah, the events, you know, uh, strike me more than the background in this specific scene. But I agree at least that the part where the sun comes up and the, with the specters and everything, uh, those are pretty, you know, iconic moments. Sorry, I'm getting my bearings again. Uh, the specters finally catch up to Guts, and he actually has to fight for a bit while on horseback. But what's interesting to me is the horse becomes tired very, very soon. The horse isn't going to be able to take them much further at this rate because of the weight of the Dragon Slayer. I, I like that Puck tries to warn Guts that they're coming, but mm. you know, he, he already knows. So yeah. It, it's, it's interesting because uh, it shows that Puck can detect evil, but you know, like the brand is as efficient as, if not more. Just a different kind of antenna. Yeah. And, and I like how you see, you know, the Spectroscope. It's like, you know, it reminds me of uh, what happened during the eclipse, you know, when it starts. Is that the the astral world or the interstice closes up on guts, you know, and then whoosh, they come over over them. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you guys about here, I think we know the answer, but I kind of just forgot like how to define it here in terms of the specters that we're, he's hitting over and over. They reform after he slashes them, right? It's like a temporary yeah. way to dispel them. Yeah, they can't die. They, they can't die. Only right. light, only sunlight can dispose them. That's what I thought. I just wanted to reinforce that. Or, fi- as we or go fire. Forward. I say only sunlight, but fire, you know, that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. yeah, hitting them does nothing. That's why he has to fight all night long because they come by the dozens and dozens and yeah. nothing, you know. He can scatter their form and then temporarily have a reprieve before they reform and do another volley, basically. Yeah, but since they attack him by the hundreds, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, we'd be remiss without noting. Throughout this entire encounter between him and Farnese and these specters, that he's continually kind of jibing her about the religious, you know, implications of this kind of thing. About you know, keep your eyes open. We're going to witness miracles here, and uh, it's kind of taunting her for her her religious affiliation. And Guts yeah. wants to shove a theological debate down her throat while this is all going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. he's got the advantage. I think he's just making fun of the difference between her worldview and the actual supernatural things. Is witnessed in reality yeah so, yeah. yeah it's just she's got it completely wrong basically and uh, i think he also 
he's also sensing, you know, that she's some kind of a hypocrite, you know, so. Yeah. The horse, uh, I, I can't tell if it's about to be possessed or it bucks them because it's too tired. Well, there's, a, there's actually its boss. It's like Gus reflects on the fact the horse is really getting tired. He can't mm-hmm. take much of it. And then the specters start possessing it. So, Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I noticed that. You can that, see its face there. I see the veins in its face, which, you yeah. know, is reminiscent of it being possessed. And then the bottom panel there, you can see him swarming all over the horse. So, yeah, quite clear. Just before the veins appear, you can see two of them grab it and uh, oh, start, yeah, start yeah. you know, yeah. So they jump from the horse or fall from the horse, and uh, Guts has to catch Farnese as they kind of roll down cliffside. Yeah. He actually saves her life, probably, or at least, you know, saves her from serious damage. Right, and she asks why, and he says she has to keep her around to answer why these people are chasing him, why the Holy See is pursuing him. Uh, this is really interesting what happens here. I don't, I don't think there's a similar example before this point, but when these wild dogs get possessed, they take on human characteristic faces. I don't think there's been an animal slash human kind of hybrid specter possession until now. Probably not. I can't think of any at least. Yeah. It's, pretty, it's quite disturbing <laughs> the way that the way that it works out. And the Farnese immediately is kind of thrown off by this crazy look. They're talking as well. She tries to run away, but like that doesn't last very long, you know. Right. Yeah. I like how the guts manages to slash one, um, and the head kind of bounces towards her, wanting <laughs> oh, to yeah. bite her, and guts smashes it with his iron hand. We get this kind of inner monologue with Farnese talking about how she was kind of paralyzed by what she was seeing here. Not even a prayer came to her mind during this time. She couldn't find any way to calm herself down or seek solace despite all the you know scriptures she's read couldn't calm herself down yeah it's interesting because uh, it's already even early on at this point clues about her character you know the fact she's ruled by fear and uh, she tries to control it through prayer and all that other stuff but you know when put you know when faced with this she just can't take it anymore you know nothing nothing works yeah actually throughout this entire scene i think it's it's it's, it's more evident later on during the morning truth episode but uh it's, it's it's the beginning of her fascination with guts uh that becomes the reason for why he she seeks him out and it's because he's not ruled by fear like she is so she she wants to know why how he's able yeah. to do that you know just a strong character a strong personality in this you know harsh world she wants to know how to survive in this world I like I like the the part where you know God slashes the the head off of a dog and you know you see the specter's head take place like and, out yeah and the thing still you know gets up on its leg you know that's really it's beyond eerie you know it's just goddamn crazy you know yeah the whole thing there's a lot of that happening here and she sees a horse and thinks she can ride it to safety she orders it to uh, I order you to allow me to mount you and then run why, why is she talking to the horse first of all. <laughs> But, uh, well, as we can yeah, find out, the horse can probably actually understand her. Oh, yeah, now he can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's why she was asking. That face on the horse is even more horrible yeah. than the ones on the dog. Yeah, you know? it is. The, the human characteristics. It's the expression as well. And it's the giant human nose and all that kind of stuff. Just, wow. And he gets face-to-face with her and, you know, says he's going to mount her instead. And she sees, uh, Guts sees her from, actually Guts hears her first and comes over to her to see her about to be raped. And then he has an immediate flashback of the eclipse, a very uh, vivid moment for him. I love the way that panel bleeds uh, from the top to the bottom into yeah, his mind like that. Mind. And I like that it's the first thing he's reminded of, and that really triggers, like, now he's really 
really pissed. Yeah, immediately decapitates it, and the rocks kind of save her life. I mean, you can say that he pulled back, but you know, the blade hits the rocks before it hits her neck. Yeah, it almost yeah almost cuts her head off. Yeah, and he hit he hit it so hard that it actually burst his wound open again. Right. Yeah. You know, he was able to swing the sword before now when he had wounds, but this you know this particular slash, you're right. You know, it caused the wounds to erupt. Yeah, it's because he swung it so yeah. hard. You know, when you look at his face. Uh, it it actually reminds me, it's not just Black Souls, man. It's almost like the beginning of uh, the Beast of Darkness. Mm, yeah. yeah, It's that kind of anger that can only be provoked by reminding him of what happened during the Eclipse. Yeah, Puck, um, Puck caught a glimpse of that. Actually, I think it's his first indication of the Eclipse, which he had been traveling for two years, and he's never had this kind of sensation before, and he wonders what it was about. Actually, it's Puck's first vision of Casca as well. Yep. And he wonders what that was about. Indeed. Yeah. I also like that uh, Guts tells Farnese just simply to stop wandering around if he wants mm-hmm. to leave. Yeah, and she and she just complies this time. It's like, yeah. uh, that was a neat little moment. And it's interesting that she seems to realize that he's actually, you know, protecting her more than anything else. Yeah, that, I, I do like how they, their dynamic completely changed after that, you know, after he saved her life, not once but twice in, 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 this, in this manner that she finally follows orders and stays put but she's also you can tell she's in shock yeah i mean it's like it's more it's almost more primal than even i think her understanding of he saved me or anything like that it's just that he is this you know the only force out there that really has a chance to stand up to this you know this onslaught and i think it's clear that he's like this constant and he's not at all afraid or flinching or anything Mm -hmm. so it's a good beginning their uh, eventual relationship yeah, uh, guts is talking to the the specters now in this moment before they you know begin their fight again and saying that they've they've awakened in him a sensation that's the worst he can possibly feel and dedicates this the rest of the night to killing them over and over until the day breaks. Yeah, not even protecting himself on his. Yeah, I love that final shot where his face is in darkness. And that just the look on his face, the seriousness of that eye. Yeah, it's uh, you know, even even though. He's not the classical white icing or anything like that. You can tell he's really, really angry. Yeah, you're right. It's a, it's not the it's not the the what we come to expect from an angry look from guts. It's a, it's a very serious look. This one's a this one is almost Schwarzenegger esque, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also like how like nothing he cuts the horse in half. You know, we can see the the head oozing again out of the neck yeah. of the dog, and mm-hmm. he just sort of you know it's a non-event. The horse is actually we just see it <laughs> sliced in half before we even see that he's doing it. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to comment on that. I love that little fat guy coming out. It's just <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, um, day finally breaks. You have this edit. Light is beginning to creep over the horizon. Still, some shadows linger throughout this the scene, and guts is already kind of taking a break after a long night of swinging. But, you know, one of my favorite panels in the whole series, honestly, the, the, the cross-hatching here as Guts is arching his back like that. Just so yeah, gorgeous. It's Love yeah, it. it's amazing. Love how they it's did amazing. the shadows of that. And the way in which fun is this season. Because it's also... It actually reminds me of uh, when, you know, Femto is incarnated and uh, they first all seem with, uh, you know, the day breaking and they seem from afar. And the way fun is it looks at Guts... At that time, this time, it reminds me of that. Yeah, and it's actually even written into the narrative. She talks about you know how she was mesmerized by the way he looked. And how she, while she merely tried to flee, to escape, to run away, she couldn't even 
find the strength to pray or anything like that. But, you know, he, meanwhile, fought. Right. She's in a dark place here because she's uh, feeling very weak. and Yeah, and Paulus... And I think it's also the being of her face. Like, her face was always very fragile and because it was, uh, let's say, a sham, pretty much. Mm-hmm. But here, I think it's really, you know, like the cracks start, you know, happening right now. It's, it's, it's the point where she's already starting to break at this point. Not that she was very strong before, but this is a key moment for her. It's, yeah, it's right. It's, it's quite a contrast from how she's first introduced and then those f- subsequent volumes, 15 and 16, the expression she always had was kind of just like clinging to control. Like she has to do her best to put on a good, good show for feeling she's in control, but really she's driven by fear. And this whole scene just kind of draws that out of her and kind of breaks her down. And you're right, we begin to see who she really is yep. in this moment. And that's, ac- that's actually how she's feeling as well, helpless and powerless. And it's that moment that uh, I like how the specter does it, kind of creeping from shadow to shadow, gets right up onto her. And uh, what's really interesting about this whole scene is it kind of talks her into this whole possession. You know, we, we tend to imagine possessions happening quickly and forcefully, but this one, it's um, kind of seduces her into this feeling. I think it's also because it's too weak at this point. Uh, when, when it's night, the night is full on and they are big and strong, I think they can possess somebody, you know, just like brutally, violently, but because this one is, like, she's in a position of weakness, uh, emotionally, mentally, and this one is weak because the day has broken, so I think it, it in a way, it has to possess her like that. Uh, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I also feel like it's a neat little insight into the, you know, the whole process. Like, you know, we see it happen sort of instantly, but at the same time, they're also playing on the emotions of whoever they're possessing, you know, God's anger and his rage and all that. And, you know, yep. pretty much channeling that in their favor. And so this is yep. just sort of a little different way of seeing that, uh, that happen. It's not unlike what they were doing when they were teasing guts about the beast of darkness in the yeah. volume. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even in even in the the things they're focusing on. I mean, I think it's like uh, like the scene in volume sixteen. It, it found a window into this person through their kindred darkness within her. It sensed something in her that it could basically you know manipulate. Within yeah, exactly. Similar to similar to guts. Yep, that's how they work. Yeah. It's uh, talking about how she enjoyed, you know, d- delivering pain like that, and the the, the look of guts uh, when he was all covered in blood. <clears throat> her dealing with her sadism, basically. We actually see a little bit of a beast of Farnese here, Farnese here, with the, the <laughs> way the specter is pulling away from her as the crazy eyes, all that, and she's touching herself. It's interesting. Yeah. And uh, she becomes fully possessed and approaches guts. Uh, I like how she actually gets stronger. He, he tries to struggle for a moment and realizes that she's strong. I guess yeah. that was a result of the possession. Yeah, I, I like how you can see her actual self crying, like she's being victimized uh, while the, the oh, specter yeah. is in control. And like the specter seems to be playing on her lust, or at least you know on that sexual side. And, you know, he's manipulating her. While it's a violation in a way. So it's a. It's very intimate and very, you know, like, uh, it also explains why after that moment she's very, you know, uh, like wounded, you know. Uh, sure. Uh, after what happens. That's a good point. I never focused on that shot of her crying while it's doing those things to her. Interesting. 
Anyway, Puck, I like how Puck is just like floored by this. All the panels of him, his, his <laughs> eyes are like wide. And, you know, that one particular one when she straddles him, his, his eyes are like almost as big as his head. Well, I think that's, uh, that's also what happened to Guts. He was just totally, uh, yeah. <laughs> this is so unexpected. Sure. Yeah, and he doesn't fight at first, you know, or try to do anything. And kind of, I, I mean, you can kind of imagine he's kind of see like where she's going with this, but then he realizes he can't break free immediately. <laughs> I like it. Let's see where she's going with this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like where this is going. <laughs> she asks him to raise the sword slowly and, and split her in two. And he, uh, right, but right as he's, you know, intending to knock her out, you know, the sun comes over the horizon. And uh, the specter comes out just enough for Puck to swat at it to dispel yeah. it. And then she comes I, I to her senses. I think more likely he was waiting for, yeah, the sun to do its work and ah. just, you know, end the possession. Okay. But I guess, you know, it uh, didn't happen clear enough. Sure. You don't think Guts is trying to get a freebie? Yeah, <laughs> no. I, I doubt that. Oh, uh, I was possessed too. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it was a crazy time. God, you guys. <laughs> And uh, as she immediately comes back, you know, Guts just tells her, could you mind getting off, you know? Could you just step off for a minute? <laughs> While she's crying and yeah. looking so obviously distraught. I actually really like that uh, panel of her crying. I think it's a very beautiful panel. Yeah, yeah. I like how the hair kind of mirrors the, the hands as well, the, the hatching. And it just looks very it looks very broken, you know? All the... uh, yeah, I like the eyes and how he did the crying Terry part. Well, I, I, like, the hair, I like the hair more, though. Well, yeah, I mean, Twitch, Twitch is on, man. You, you like whatever you want. <laughs> I think screams. it's also just uh, obviously a very low moment for not just the violation of the possession, but just the the way she's you know displayed in front of him like this, and you know her behavior. You know, it's obviously very embarrassing, you know, and you know shameful from her point of view with the whole uh, her position and her faith at this point. Of course. Yeah, of course. It's like she's been completely humiliated. Yeah, she's as humiliated as she could possibly be. Yeah. And Serpico picked the absolute worst time to spot them. You know, the, the position that this is all happening in. Hard to explain away. He has, yeah. The, yeah, and he has that look on his face, too, that's kind of uh, hard to yeah. read. Yeah. I think, I think you can read it as what is pretty much what it is. It's being, it's judgmental while trying not to be judgmental. <laughs> Yeah, I like how she tells him to to kick guts, and he immediately says, "Well, I can't, you know, I, like I can't do it." Yeah. <laughs> what if I could? What, which gets him slapped in the face. Yeah, yeah. He's trying to be practical about it. I, I like how he's trying to talk to him like this is, you know, I don't know, mano a mano a little bit, but and you you can tell that's not how he actually feels about this. But he's trying to walk out of this yeah. with his shoes still on. He's putting on some, you know, yeah. Some nice cool guy. face, but, yeah. yeah. Anyway, right as Guts turns, you know. Yeah, let um, his guard down and... Yeah. <laughs> Immediately, Serpico, you know, I like how he leaps as well, to, like, kind of anticipating Guts' slash. And it hops right over the, the Dragon Slayer after Guts draws. But it wasn't good enough, you know, manages to get his, the bottom of his boot like that. And Guts comes away with a small scratch on his face. And he compliments his draw style. It's a really cool introduction to this character. Who this is his first really big, you know, serious moment. We saw that he threw the stick in volume sixteen, kind of giving, yeah. implying that he's a little more clever than he seems. But this is the real full face, you know, 
showing what he's capable of kind of thing. And just, uh, I like how they compliment, they sort of begrudgingly compliment each other. <laughs> yeah. I like it. It's also, there's guts isn't thrown by this. He's actually kind of excited by it. Yeah. He, yeah. He, I, I actually like that when Sepiko leaves, guts is pissed, like, hey, come, come back. You know, like, we, we're going to kill each other now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they both, they're, they're both more impressed uh, with the other than they initially were. But yeah, it is funny how guts was like, you know, Serpico reveals his also sort of uh, his own mercurial side by saying like, well, you know, I'm going to go. <laughs> that was my shot. Why sh- I'm not going to be able to win if we continue. Yeah, it shows a, like an extreme sense of practicality to him. Yeah. Which, you know, like as is confirmed later on in the series. I also like that he says goodbye to Puck, which you know implies that he can see. Yeah, him. good point. That's pretty cool. Anyway, the section ends, you know, kind of mirroring the volume cover with uh, Puck leaning on Guts' face like that. And Puck's yeah. actually kind of summarizing Farnese, saying that he feels like she's bound on all sides. Kind of memory, mir- uh, talking about the, the chapter name, of course, Bound in Chains. Yeah. It's interesting that uh, it shows us how Puck can really decipher people's emotions and feelings well as an elf, you know. So, and it's also like... Like we were saying earlier, uh, a clue as to what she, you know, will happen later on for with her. Yeah, I mean, this whole section, you know, independent of its its place in the story uh, for the immediate story that it's telling. I mean, it's really laying the seeds for the future for all four of these characters here. You know, we know how integral Serpico and Farnese are to the to the group moving forward, but this is their first real encounter. You know, and I think it's interesting the way it ends because uh, it 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 doesn't divorce it from future growth here. The way this ends, you know, Farnese is determined to 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 punish Guts or to, to kill him somehow, to get him revenge for what happened here. And yeah, I think it's also because he must not, like, no one must know or see mm-hmm. yeah. her weak self what she's truly like. I think it's, that's also a key part of it. It's not so much revenge for what happened, but it's because he saw her. She's, at she's her got most to silence him, you know. Even though he's yeah. going to tell anybody, but it's yeah, yeah. It's, it's someone knows. He right. saw her at her most vulnerable, and no one must be able to to see that. I think that's also a key part of it. It, it jeopardizes the the persona that she's created for herself. Yeah, pretty much. That protects her from the harsh reality of the world. Right. Uh, moving on into uh, Revelations, um, part one of three, I think it is. We have this massive, one of the more technically impressive two-page spreads of the series, I think. Probably, if not the, uh, just a, this kind of a um, amalgamation of different images, all dreamlike, because we're seeing pieces of the uh, revelation that people presumably across most of the world had. I think people even in Kushan territories had a kind of revelation. It's implied in volume 22, I think. Uh, but for all that really matters, people across the continent had this revelation of uh, this the Dark Age happening here. Uh, various calamities are striking across the world. You know, a plague, uh, towers crumbling, an earthquake uh, ravaged a town. Uh, the sun was obscured by a black black smoke. I like how the scythe here, held by uh, death or the image of death, is actually the Kushan riders on horseback. Yeah. Because the, yep. the trademark helmets cutting through all these people, all being sliced kind of in a very fantastical way. Um, what's really interesting about this is, you know, obviously it ends with the Falcon kind of, you know, cutting through the darkness and bringing in, bringing in light is 
you know, <clears throat> the revelation everyone had, it's not just the future. It's, it's also, it's not our future. It's, our, it's what it was several volumes ago, you know, but it's a finite prophecy. It's not seeing into our future. It has a definite ending with the Falcon sweeping away the darkness, you know, which is, was reinforced by, you know, the same kind of prophecy we saw in volume 33, uh, with the children had something similar with the Falcon cutting through the darkness. So my point is that while it is a prophecy of the Hawks or the Falcon saving them, it doesn't say anything about our times now, you know? Well, yeah, it's just, you know, yeah, it's, it's very simple. Actually, there have been several visions like that. Uh, we, we saw, for example, that uh, the people in Windham, the kids mm -hmm. saw what would happen, that kind of stuff. So presumably this only served a purpose to tell people that, uh, Griffith was coming back. Yep. So it was like very simply just hyping things up for his return, preparing people for what was to come. Uh, and also at the same time, how to say, uh, you know, finding out the the fear of the darkness that was uh, currently reigning with the Christians yeah. and uh, the plague, the earthquakes, everything. Which, uh, ironically, I it's also enacting because, I mean, if we find out it's what prompts the Kushan attack, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, you talked about this signaling Griffith's return. I think more fundamental, at least for the, even the average bystander, is that the, the Falcon is a symbol of hope. The Falcon is the only symbol of hope against all these dark things, you know, which we know the God Hand and the idea of evil work on a subconscious level and making that the key to everything, you know, makes perfect sense for when Griffith finally does get incarnated well, and yeah. start falling into place. Like everything, everything we've seen that scene, pretty much everything of it, every part of it is engineered by the idea of evil and the God Hand. Like, like Griffith said, Ganishka attacked in the first place, you know, uh, because of that. Everything the, sure. the plague. We yeah, can the expect plague, the earthquakes. Yeah, we can ex we can expect the, the 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 earthquakes. Every part of it was probably engineered by the God End. So, yeah, it's it's basically uh, preparing things for Griffith's triumph and the advent of Fantasia. My point is mostly that we've seen physical manipulations. We haven't seen many subconscious manipulations, and this is one of them. Through the dream. Uh, yeah, we haven't seen them because it's hard to depict subconscious stuff, but sure. I think it's, it's implied through, throughout the series that this kind of thing tends to happen. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, with the heretics, you know, I mean, it's later on in the series, but you see Slan, you know, present there and you can imagine that she found that, you know, the last and everything. Yeah, sure. There. So there's all that kind of stuff. I, I think, I think we'll get to, to know more about that. When we've, we uh, see more of the Godin members individually, we've arguably seen it depicted with the demon child actually in Griffith, for like showing a a representation of a you know a manipulation of one's feelings like that. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's more direct, like grabbing the reins for a moment. Are we talking about the Hill of Swords? Yeah, I mean it could be either way. I mean, uh, yeah, was it influence on his actions, or was it literally like you know? <laughs> grabbing the steering wheel. You know, it's, uh, it's hard, hard to, say. to say. I think, uh, Walter, what Walter meant was more like subconscious than this, but yeah, I see what you mean. Anyway, we're introduced to this, uh, very dreary, uh, looking, uh, hillside or cliffside, I guess, where the nice, entire... uh, nice background. Nice, uh, <laughs> nice place you got here in Western Midland. Yeah. 
I like how this is all explained as, you know, the consequence of the Hundred Years' War. You know, the there are no trees because they took them for war, and so the rain just goes through the area without being absorbed and creates, you know, landslides and rock slides and terrible living conditions, basically. And just like the idea of showing physical consequence to a war like that. Yeah. I mean, you think of the consequences of a war as human toll, but here the land's taking a toll as well. Yeah, and again, it also works to show off how uh, there's manipulation going on. Like, something that's been happening leads to this, which leads to that. It's all this stuff put together. Like, the kingdom was weak. It's also why it was easily conquered by the cushions. The king died at the same moment. All of that works together towards one direction, and that's the, the power of causality. Sure, I mean, directly cause and effect, you know, I mean, yeah, you're right, these next two episodes are pretty much all about that, the consequences of actions from previously and and before that as well. Anyway, this landslide happens, and Raban immediately, you know, asks his soldiers to, you know, help these people, help help them out, and his commandant thinks it's kind of ridiculous that Raban himself would go out and try to help these people. (laughs) And it's like how it shows Raban's character, you know, the noble knight, the valiant knight, they'll actually... You know, wants to protect the the people and not just you know carry out the the title of having having knighthood. Actually, is yeah. sort of acts like a knight. Yeah, we get to see him in the field too, and acting also as a man of action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he also yeah he came to the resistance in volume twenty seven as well. That kind of stuff. He uh, grabs his boy, uh, telling him he's safe, and then he sees that the boy appears to have been dead already, or at least has the plague. I can't. I've never quite deciphered what it is he's reacting to. I always presumed it was he saw him having symptoms of some Yeah, I think he sickness. yeah, that's what sets him off. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. He, he he sees uh you get to see some stains on the skin and I think uh these are meant to be signs of the plague and that's how he how say realizes that uh you know these people are are infected by the plague. Right. They're leaving, you know, we should have commented earlier, but this entire group of people that's passing by the troops, they're, they're walking away from something, the, uh, the, uh, the nearby town, they presume. And now he, he kind of puts two and two together. They're walking away trying to escape the plague. So he rushes ahead to town to confirm that. Takes a horse. And uh, I just like how eerie this town is. You know, it's completely empty. Again, this really yeah. gives us a sense of what life was like, you know, post-eclipse era. era. When you know, just things are just going to shit for this continent. <laughs> I like that you see rats everywhere. Oh, in the water source as well. You know, it's just super. Yeah. Creepy, you know. Well, I yeah. like the. I especially like the old man. He uh, he runs into here. Yeah, I, I like almost everything the guy says. He just I like it's like his yeah. attitude. You know, he's given up on the world, particularly his his parting line about how there's no use swinging your sword around in these parts. Yeah. He talks about the rats having brought the plague, you know, really focusing on the rats having, you know, caused this whole thing. But then the rats themselves were, of course, robbed of their, you know, forest home because of the war. So everything is yep. following a uh, consequence. It all ties together. Raban finally, you know, says the, the line, of course, is this the price of a hundred years war? It is, but even that is itself is just a chip in a pile of other decisions. And he's really, you know, questioning... We get a lot of insight here. There's also a thing he mentions that uh, it's just a detail, but he mentions plague, famine, and also uh, mercenary bands that turn to robbers. Mm-hmm. And you know, we often see bandits, random bandits in Berserk, and I like that this line at least connects the fact the, the, the mercenaries who are fighting in the war are people who took up that that livelihood because mm-hmm. of that. 
they, yeah, became the same guys who tried to rape women in the series, who got us to just kill, who Isidro runs into. These are the guys. So these are guys that could have been fighting next to Guts at some point in the series, you know. Sure. So I like that it explains how people came to live as robbers, to have weapon armors, that kind of stuff. Because they used to be mercenaries, and after the wars were over, well, they took to... I mean, it's a very realistic consequence of a time after a massive buildup of a war like this. You're going to have these guys whose livelihood it was to make war and combat, and they're starved of that in a time of peace. And so, of course, they turn to this kind of activity, particularly in a world as dark as Berserk, where you know people are supposed to be acting on their worst behavior. <laughs> yeah. We get a lot of insight into the state of the world here, just in the next three or four panels uh, with Raban talking about how, kind of lamenting the, the state of lack of governance here, How about how two-thirds of the military force was, or, or sorry, seven-tenths, which is close to two-thirds, the military force was spent to hunt down Griffith and not used to you know, make reparations for post-war era. era. Yeah, helping All. the building, the, the kingdom get rebuilt and secured. It's interesting, actually, because, again, it works. It works in his favor. Yeah, what we are saying is that it's all tied together. So, in fact, the king is driven mad and trying to catch Griffiths while he can't because he's not, you know, in the, in the world anymore. So that also works in the favor of uh, the Godhand's plan. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And he realizes, he thinks about the dream that everyone had, and then he makes the connection, of course, that, you know, the Falcon was the, or the, the, Hawk, the Falcon of Light was the savior in that vision, and to him, but to also for the people of Midland, there's only one that represents the Falcon. He doesn't say it, but and of course he means Griffith. Yeah. And at that point, his you know commandant catches up to him and uh, tells him, lets him know that the king has succumbed to illness and he has the vision of death. Quite an exaggerated and frightening vision of death, too. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, you know. I kind of when I look at that, I think he had just finished talking about how much the king had fucked over the country, yet this hit him like a tidal wave. And of course, it's because. You know, the king isn't like a president to us. You know, the king has been around yeah. probably, presumably, this guy's entire life. You know, Raban's entire life, or at least that lineage. You know, has been around. So yeah, and the and the problem is the king has no real heir because Charlotte isn't fit to rule at that point, mm-hmm. and the king's death will throw the whole kingdom in disarray, pretty much. Yeah, and before that, you know, as they make arrangements to leave, we see these rats kind of gathering together into this big conglomeration of a form until it's Conrad's face kind of belching out specters. Yeah. Kind of giving an indication of, you know, the larger hand at work behind all these cause and effects, not just random events, but actually part yeah. of a giant pattern. Um, Revelations part two. We I like this transition, actually. Um, the end of uh, that episode has its like lightning strike. And then you turn the page and there's lightning striking a Wyndham as well, you know. It's a little, I think there were Western Midland before, so it was just a little bit, you know, towards the center of the continent. Yep. There's just really small panels, and just kind of giving you a, an impression of the overall atmosphere of the town. And it's pretty grim, you know. Yeah. It's almost post-apocalyptic, actually, with fires yep. in the streets and people have these grim expressions. People are staying inside. There's also corpses in the streets, yeah. Uh, you, you get a good sense of you know what the day-to-day life is right now in, in Wyndham. Quite a bit different from the fanfare that we kind of called to mind during the Golden Age when the you know the Falcons returned victorious from Doldry. Not quite the same city anymore. This dramatic shot of uh, the king's uh, bedchambers uh, over uh, that overhead shot. I like all the 
different motifs and figures there are there. Very cool looking. Um, we see the king here in bed. We actually only see the part of his face and the lower part of his, his head. Because later we see him, and it's actually a, a dream. It's a vision uh, in, a, in a totally different kind of you know area. But here he is dying on in his bed before he has that vision. Azil, you mentioned talking about how you know uh, the, in the immediate death of the, the king, he's not dead yet, but they're already scrambling these uh, yep. inner court people about who's going to rule the country. You know, they're throwing names out there, of course, names that we have not known. Uh, but they're scrambling to see who, who makes sense for the next regent, who, of course, will act out Charlotte's will in the case of the king's death. Uh, I guess most the salient point here is that they, they mentioned that Minister Foss uh, you know, never aligned himself with another political party or political agenda following what happened with the, uh, the, the, the queen and her assassination. So he's completely cut ties with his you know, conspiratorial ways. He looks like he's just literally waiting in line for you know, Griffith to arrive. And that's what he says when uh, Owen passes him is that the Falcon will come again. Yep. Which comes across as eerie to Owen in that moment, at least. At least the way that's paneled looks a little eerie with the lightning strike. I like how Owen is uh, stricken by the fact uh, they're already planning stuff while the king isn't even dead yet at that point. Yeah. Of course, yeah. I mean, that being said, I would expect nothing less, really. I mean, these particular guys, I mean, Owen's supposed to be, you know, Virtuous, just like Raban. So, of course, there's these losers conspiring in court. <laughs> and they're disgusted. I mean, even Raban, when he was, you know, sort of meditating on the king being a madman, mm-hmm. sort of dismissed it after as, you know, contemplating, you know, how all, all this has been very hard on him. He sort mm-hmm. of forgives him, in the, you know, in that same moment. So it's like these are two honorable men who are very yeah. loyal and sort of, you know, trying, always trying to see things the best they can and do the right things. Uh, and Owen then reflects on the the vision that they had, and kind of interpreting it in his own way. But you know, there's really only one conclusion. He talks about how uh, the priests had clamored that it was God's revelation that signified uh, the appearance of someone who could save them all. But the king's illness fell immediately after that dream. He says, which is interesting. I wonder if the king himself kind of took took that dream differently, or maybe had his own dream. Yeah, of course, they all had their own dreams, so mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure the king had a dream that was not to his mind. It life. was just Griffith giving him the bird, basically, and probably <laughs> screwing Charlotte's <laughs> brains out. Yeah, pretty much. Well, I, I think it's probably uh, like uh, the same things that we'll get to see very soon, you know? Some things that imply that Griffith will come back, take Charlotte away from yeah. him, take the power, and yeah, and his illness might be related to that, or it might be, you know, due to some other thing, but yeah, no doubt related to the rest. Azil, you said that, of course, we had a di- he had a different dream, but like, I don't, I don't think that's immediately obvious until you put all the pieces together. I mean, it certainly is the case. I mean, I, the, the two-page spread of, the, of death, you know, we see all these varying visions, you know, as readers were being afforded kind of a singular vision of what the, the dream and the revelation meant. But everyone had their own, like, iteration of that dream. Yeah, I mean, I, I say so because after that we get to see uh, different people having different versions of the dream. Exactly. But obviously at that point you can't know uh, yet. Yeah, that's all I wanted to note. Anyway, Owen's going to visit Charlotte to let her know that uh, the king is on his deathbed basically. But you know she's having none of it. And she's, it says that she's you know basically stayed indoors the past two years in grief or just waiting for Griffith. She's ho- still holding on to the lodestone charm that he had given her the two of the pieces together. 
saying that she wants nothing to do with her father and saying that she's not her, it's not her father. And then transition over to this uh, really stunning vision of the, the king's dream. Uh, he's cold on his throne, surrounded by high walls and powerful guards, but still Griffith can get to him or Femto can get to him. He says, bring warmth, bring a fire. But, you know, Charlotte comes, of course, the, his warmth, his light. Yeah. But uh, just then the, the falcon swoops down and covers her on his wings. It's really, though, I mean, the fact that Griffith appeared, you know, it's really just there. It's kind of a final fuck you to the, to the king right before he dies. Pretty much. And I, I think it is what ultimately kills him, you know, this vision. Yeah. And he talks about the king in his final moments. This is being a kind of release, a kind of way of liberating him by having this vision and dying like that. Yeah, it's just pretty abject. Uh, and then the bell tolls, signal, signaling the death of the king, which Owen hears, and then Charlotte hears. And then she sheds a tear for him at that moment, saying, Father. And uh, the people are wondering what they're going to do. How was the kingdom going to do as the bell tolls? And then uh, right on the outskirts, a boy points to the horizons, the horizon and sees uh, you know, the Kushan army assembling on the mat, on the, on the, yeah. out there. I They're like, fucked. I like as the kid says, the mountains are moving. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. I missed that. That's very cool. Uh, anyway, the Kushan war elephants and, you know, just the entire, all the hills are covered with troops and various war apparatus. And we see that ominous figure standing on the elephant. Yeah. You've mentioned that as possibly being Kanishka and like, I, I don't disagree, but it's of course impossible to tell, but that elephant does look different than all the other elephants you know it has that spike yeah. on its top and the rest of them aren't mounted quite like that you know but yeah and i mean the way it's got that very regal looking uh booth on top mm-hmm. he's got the decoration as the eyes and it's mm-hmm. got the throne mini throne on top of it which the others yeah the others have a uh, warlike stuff but this one has a throne so, so ganishka's first appearance are we gonna yeah, actually, I would say it is, even though, like, I mean, it's like uh, Farnese's father, you know, Federico. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> His first appearance is at the shadow, and then, and I think it's the same for Ganishka here. Sure. I mean, there's also a reason it's put forward, like, it's it's the first one in front of everything else. I think it's because it's obviously the boss. I agree, yeah. The imagery there makes no mistake, I think, of him being an important figure. I guess just the lack of a face just is the only thing that holds it back from a 100% confirmation. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for our Volume 17 reread for now. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in a few weeks to uh, complete that volume and then move on. Mm -hmm.